0: I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Would it be so wrong of me to say that most Americans, well, we just form our initial understanding of the FBI from the way the FBI gets depicted on TV and in the movies? I'm talking mostly about crime shows where the bad guys do something terrible, something heinous, maybe they were crossing state lines, or maybe it's just the local law enforcement people are not up to the job and you got to call in the FBI. Uh, Sometimes there's also a storyline in which the white hats are not worn by the FBI. There's some rogue agent, perhaps. That can really complicate a plot. For all of the fiction, though, the FBI is a real thing with real responsibilities that we probably only partially understand. And a very real history. This history is, frankly, I think a bit bizarre. And we're going to have to go back even before the era of J. Edgar Hoover to learn about how the FBI even got going, how it came into being. You have to go all the way back to the 1800s, apparently, to get a feel for what was going so wrong in the country. Something really bad going on, and the the government felt compelled to come up with some way to fix Uh, What had gone so haywire? And to tell us about the beginnings and uh, where the FBI has come since then, uh, the origin story primarily, we have with us now Dr. Willard M. Oliver, a professor of criminal justice at Sam Houston State University. Oliver is author of The Birth of the FBI, Teddy Roosevelt, The Secret Service, and The Fight Over America's Premier Law Enforcement Agency. Will Oliver, welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you for having me. You know, in order to begin this story, I guess we're really going to have to understand the federal government's involvement across state boundaries from the very beginning, even if that involvement seems to have been kind of late in coming. And I think it has to do with marshals.
1: Uh, Is that the best place to start? That's probably the best place to start. It's where I start in the book.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know, a marshal, to me, uh, from the movies again, that's, too many of us are informed by the movies. I just think, well, that's a guy with a badge,
1: but I have no idea what a marshal was supposed to do. Well, that's changed over the years. Um, the reality was is that from the very beginning, when the Constitution was created and our government started there was no real mechanism of of law enforcement for the feds. It was left up to state and local governments. So as a result, um, one of the things that happened when they the first act through Congress was the Judiciary Act, and it created the U.S. Marshal Service. But really it was just one person that was assigned to a federal judge and they just handled the mundane, everyday kind of paperwork and things like that, working alongside the judge. Um, and as a result, it was kind of an innocuous position. Um, and other than dealing with the, you know, the prisoners, et cetera, bringing them before the cases, they really had no law enforcement you know, mechanism.
0: So the marshals were not out there uh, on the front of any uh, sort of dangerous um, escapade going out in the Wild West. They were kind of office
1: people? Yep. And that's how it started. But what also happened was, is the federal government and its, you know, busyness of creating government never realized, and the constitutional founders never realized, there was no mechanism by which to voice the federal government's you know, uh, role or statements or what it was doing to the people. So, for instance, if Washington issues a proclamation to honor Thanksgiving, there was no way to get that to the people. And so what happened was is they realized that, well, we have a federal marshal assigned to each of these, you know, um, courts, you know, the circuit courts. And so they're out there and we'll use them to do it. Well, that's
0: just kind of an ad hoc thing, isn't it?
1: It really was. Uh, the best example to me, which blows my mind, because, I, you know, I, we have a census bureau, and it's this large federal bureaucracy that then hires, you know, people to go out and do the census every 10 years. Well, back then when they said, okay, in the Constitution we're going to do a census every 10 years, the one thing they forgot was how are we going to do it? So for the first six, seven, eight censuses, it was actually the U.S. marshals that were responsible for it.
0: So the marshals, I mean, if I were to sign up for the job, I put in my application, my resume, I want to be a marshal, the job description that comes back to me is, well, you're going to be taking a census, and maybe you'll be pushing some papers for a judge. Yep.
1: And if there were, you know, for instance, a fugitive, you would actually go after them, um but more than likely, you would also be utilizing local resources. You would turn to local police, local sheriffs. Um, so you were really a coordinator of these efforts, but you really weren't entirely like we think of the marshals today as being a, a federal law enforcement agency. So
0: the marshals were the first attempt by the federal government to have a centralized nationwide force connected with uh, the uh, uh, regulation of justice in the country?
1: Almost. The, The only hang up there is that your word centralized. We have no centralized law enforcement agency in the United States. All of the federal law enforcement agencies that we do have, have a very specific and a very narrow role. So it's not like we have a federal police force. We have eighteen thousand plus police agencies in the United States. So we still haven't even
0: gotten to a federal bureau of uh, that that is centralized, tasked with investigation of criminal behavior. Uh, but I guess the investigation and the enforcement then are, are are that's a clean,
1: crisp division and has been all along. No, it's been a very muddy. <laughs> um, you know, again, jurisdiction is always a big issue. And when you have cities and states and counties and, you know, when a crime occurs or a case occurs, you know, which jurisdiction has authority over it? Uh, And so it's always been a kind of a political, really is what it ends up being, is a political dilemma that has to get worked out. And a lot of times, you know, agents of law enforcement work it out amongst themselves. Other times, it gets thrown into the courts.
0: Well, let's talk about a very particular crisis that came to the country, and it has to do with uh, the counterfeiting of money. And I guess this really ramped up, this really escalated around the time of the Civil War, and there was a lot of counterfeiting going on. And so much so, you say, that it was a threat to the stability of the national economy and somebody had to do something about it. And was it the marshals that the government turned to?
1: Initially, it was dealing with um, the marshals, but they were already overtaxed. It was also um, essentially hiring temporary people, so civilian citizens that could actually serve as kind of quasi-investigators. And then, of course... When Pinkerton security came into existence, a lot of what the federal government did was they hired Pinkerton. So Pinkerton actually, Pinkerton agents, citizens, were doing the investigations for the federal government, including many of the counterfeiting um, investigations, which is actually what brought Pinkerton into private security was he foiled a counterfeiting ring.
0: Was counterfeiting really such a big thing? I mean, was that? uh, It's not overstating it to say that this was a bit of a, a a bit of a crisis, a a big problem for us.
1: It was a major crisis because we couldn't, we weren't, we didn't have the technology to print money that couldn't be, you know, also printed at the time. Plus, you also have to keep in mind that we didn't have a bona fide national currency. Um, Banks would actually issue their own currency. And so each bank had its own currency, and it was a nightmare system to try to work through. But part of that was because of state you know, state jurisdictions had their rights, and then within the states they would set up their programs, and then banks, it was their money, so they would issue their certificates. And so eventually, with the crisis of the Civil War, because a great way to undercut you know, the enemy, was for the South to print Northern dollars, flood the market with them, and of course, make the money basically valueless.
0: That was the, uh, this suddenly becomes a matter of uh, the, the focus of the entire nation with a civil war and, and and counterfeiting, and something has to be done, and, and you're using Pinkertons to try to solve it at this point?
1: Predominantly, yes. And it wasn't until, and this is this gets a little kind of weird as well, is at the very end of the Civil War, um, after the Civil War is over, Good Friday, right, 1865, and we all of course know what happened on that day. Uh, allegedly, the last cabinet meeting was when Lincoln said we need to create an organization that would investigate counterfeiting and it would be totally dedicated to that within the Treasury Department. Essentially, what he advocated for was the creation of the United States Secret Service. Now, the reason I say this is kind of weird is because there's no official records other than from some of the people that were there, but it was kind of a retro thing. So the question is, did Lincoln really say that or did somebody essentially take advantage of the situation and say, hey, let's create this agency Um, We'll say that, you know, Lincoln supported this because now that Lincoln's dead and nobody's going to rail against anything that said, you know, that Lincoln supported, so we'll be able to create it. And in a sense, they just created it.
0: So so whether or not Lincoln ever actually said that at a cabinet meeting, you've already connected the Secret Service with a function of dealing with counterfeiting. That's not the Secret Service I'm thinking about. The, the one I know is all about protecting government officials, including the, the president.
1: Yeah, well, today, um, they actually have both duties. They still investigate counterfeiting. And then on the other side of the House, they also protect the president, the vice president, uh, and a few other individuals. So what happened there was, is really, it, the, the whole thing came about was because if, you know, I'm originally from Washington, D.C., so I used to spend a lot of time in D.C. Um, if you look out the White House, right across the street is the Treasury Building. And so anytime you needed something done, federal law enforcement-wise, or protect the president, well, there you go. They're right across the street. The, the Treasury to protect the president? Did I hear you right? Yeah, it was the Treasury Department, and they created the U.S. Secret Service. And again, after Lincoln was assassinated, they created the U.S. Secret Service. But that was not a duty of the Secret Service to protect the president. Um, then, of course, we have Garfield assassinated, and the Secret Service does provide protection on occasion, but this was not a primary duty. Then McKinley was assassinated, and then somebody said, hey, maybe we should protect our presidents. And so now they started to get Secret Service protection, but keep in mind, it was not a mandated part of their duty. Not like it is today. And so even under Teddy Roosevelt, who would occasionally have a Secret Service agent protecting him, most of the time, he did not.
0: And uh, this is so inconceivable to me, and I think to most of us <laughs> nowadays, that, that presidents would just walk around on the streets without any kind of protection. Of course, we knew what happened as a result of that. We're going to take a short break here on our show and then come back to uh, Willard Oliver and talk about the origin of the FBI and Teddy Roosevelt whom uh, Oliver has already named, plays a very important role in, in shaping what the FBI is to become in our country. Stay tuned. Constant Wonder continues after this. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder today. I'm Marcus Smith. A pleasure to be with you. We're speaking with Willard Oliver. He is author of The Birth of the FBI, Teddy Roosevelt, the Secret Service, and the Fight Over America's Premier Law Enforcement Agency. Will Oliver, Teddy Roosevelt was a president who came into office after uh, a few assassination attempts and a couple of successful assassinations. I just have to wonder if the guy was uh, ever walking with you know an, an eye looking around, see who's after him, looking over his shoulder. Uh, he doesn't strike me as somebody who's very fearful of anything.
1: No, I don't think Teddy Roosevelt would have pretty much cared, and um, he was not going to be intimidated by anybody.
0: And yet he's the guy who eventually sort of solidifies the concept for what an FBI might be. Or maybe it's the Secret Service we should still be talking about.
1: Well, yeah, it really is. I mean, most of my book, even though it's the birth of the FBI, I spend most of my time talking about the United States Secret Service. He he had a lot of fun
0: to toying with the people assigned to to him, and I love those stories. You've got to share something of, of of this because here they are from the Treasury Department. Their Secret Service, their organization is supposed to deal with counterfeiting, but now they're getting sucked into a security detail to watch over a president.
1: Yes. Um, and more importantly, is they're also getting sucked into investigating frauds against the government with the Homestead Act. And that's really where everything starts to change here. Um, You've got to keep in mind that, again, Secret Service was under the Treasury Department. They mostly investigated counterfeiting. But if there was some kind of crime against the federal government and you needed somebody to investigate, well, you would just borrow – Secret Service agents. Now, you used to actually use the Pinkerton, but Pinkerton had um, an incident that didn't put them in good light anymore with the public. And so as a result of that, Congress essentially said, you can't use Pinkerton anymore. You got to use in-house resources. Well, there were really no in-house resources other than the Secret Service. So the Secret Service started to get borrowed to investigate things outside of counterfeiting.
0: And Teddy Roosevelt apparently approved. He put a stamp of approval on the idea that for fraudulent behavior, yeah, let's, let's use the Secret Service and uh, pursue, investigate, and eventually prosecute these criminals.
1: Well, we all know that Teddy Roosevelt was big into conservation, that he loved the outdoors and he wanted to protect the... You know, the woods and, you know, the natural resources for future generations um, ultimately created the, you know, the national park system. So if you ever go to a national park anywhere, you know, you can bless Teddy Roosevelt for having created that system and preserving it for for our benefit today. Because the reality was at the time, industries... um, you know, businessmen, um, shysters, con con artists, everything under the sun were trying to obtain homestead land, you know, again, under the old Homestead Act where people could actually get a piece of land if they lived on it um, and farmed it and worked it. Uh, they would own it at the end of a certain period of time. Well, what was happening was is a lot of these shady types – we finding ways to take that land, either flipping it from the homesteaders or buying it under false names or whatever. Any way to get a hold of the land and then they would utilize and basically strip it of natural resources. Whether that was timber, coal, silver, it didn't matter. And eventually, obviously, gas, natural gas, oil, things like that. So the problem here was, is Teddy Roosevelt was against this fraud. And so as a result, um, along with, you know, basically his staff, he said, I want to start cracking down on people that are violating these laws, that are committing fraud against the government. Uh, And he started using the Secret Service to crack down on them.
0: Now let's take a little bit of a detour here and walk us through... uh uh, the outskirts of D.C. where Teddy Roosevelt liked to go out and refresh himself and be out in in the open, and then he'd have um, people at his side, and he'd, he'd do mind games with them to see if they were up to snuff, if they could, uh, you know, were they as robust and as vigorous and as physically fit as he was? And he'd do, he'd do this to the Secret Service agents too. <laughs>
1: yeah, he was kind of a shyster himself, right? Yeah. <laughs> So he would go up to Rock Creek Park in Maryland, which is, is you know, a short walk from the White House. Uh, and then he would play this game where it was like straight through. So you walk a straight line. You pick a path. You head toward that straight ahead. If there's a river in the way, you go through the river. If there's a log in the way, you go over or under the log. If there's a fence or anything in the way, you go through it. Uh, And, you know, sometimes it might be a strenuous hill, it could be a rock face, didn't matter, you climbed it. And so a lot of times he would lose a lot of the people uh, in these little excursions of his. Uh, And so he kept them on their toes. Um, And again, he didn't always have Secret Service. Sometimes it was local police or just staffers who kind of took on a, you know, well, we got to go out with him and protect him. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um,
0: there is now a political story here that you're going to have to explain to us, and it has to do with who really makes the decision about instituting uh, something like the Secret Service or eventually the FBI, and is that the duty of a president? Does does a president have the power to do that? Is this a c- congressional? Uh, Function actually should uh, the Senate and the House uh, make appropriations for this, and I guess that uh, the executive branch and the legislative branch they they have some words with each other over this.
1: Very much so. So, putting on my political science hat, um, the issue here is is that the way the Constitution lays it out, and the big question is who's in charge of the bureaucracy. And the answer is both the Congress and the President. The President is in charge of the bureaucracy and runs the bureaucracy, but Congress has oversight. So when you hear, you know, particular individuals in working within the administration, the Congress, they can be brought forth before congressional committees and they have hearings. So you know, we're hearing the FBI agents are being brought in, um, and that they're going to testify. That's an oversight role that Congress has. But the more important question is who actually gets to create these entities. And that's not entirely clear, although we would think that the Congress would pass a bill, the president would sign it, and then they would create it. But the reality is is that it really only comes down to what about who's going to pay for it. And where are you going to get the money to fund the new bureaucracy? And any spending bill has to originate in the House. So in other words, you do have to get a congressional act. You have to get a bill passed, and then the president signs it into law. But things were a lot more murky back then. And part of this is Teddy Roosevelt was taking a lot of, you know, asserting a lot of government power, something that had not been done before. Because prior to that, in the 19th century, we had a very laissez-faire kind of government style. Now, Teddy Roosevelt comes into office, he's very much a progressive, and he wants to use the power of government for the betterment of society. So, Roosevelt
0: is the mover and the shaker behind the formation at this point, of he's inherited a Secret Service already, and now he's moving towards something bigger and better, the FBI.
1: Yes. And again, it comes out investigating a lot of the fraud. Now, where he ran into trouble, <laughs> um, as Teddy Roosevelt often did, was the fact that some of the individuals that got caught in the, um, committing these frauds, these land frauds, we're congressmen.
0: Well, fancy that.
1: Yeah. So this creates a problem because now Congress is looking at Teddy Roosevelt saying, you're using the Secret Service agents against us to investigate us, and we don't want that.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of nice if the people with the oversight don't have any oversight, right?
1: Exactly. So, of course, Teddy Roosevelt was not going to be, you know, beaten down, cowed, or anything like that. And so he started utilizing the Secret Service agents, again, on loan to, to the White House, essentially, or on loan to the Department of Justice, to investigate these land frauds. Well, Congress got real nervous about this, so um, within the House... Representative Tawney actually introduces a bill, and it's essentially to prevent the President from using agents in one entity of, of the government and then using them for other purposes beyond what they were charged to do. So in other words, basically what they what they passed was President, you cannot utilize Secret Service agents on loan for the Department of Justice to investigate land frauds, and then without saying it, that might actually implicate some of our own Congress members.
0: So Taney, as I understand, he was chairman of the U.S. House Committee on Appropriation, so he's looking at the purse, he's got the power of the purse, and yet whatever legislation they come up with, that's going to have to cross the president's desk for signature. And uh, is Roosevelt on board with any of Taney's plans? Uh, Sounds
1: like he's not. No, he's not. But keep in mind, a lot of times, these types of changes in the law are put into a much larger bill. And so the question becomes, since we don't have a line item veto, and that one piece of it creates a problem for you, but the larger bill is much more important. And we see this happen all the time, right? You know, the president's against something, but the larger bill, if he doesn't pass it, it'll shut down government. And so in many ways, the hand is forced, politically speaking. There's a lot of leverage on the part of Congress for the president to go ahead and sign the bill into law.
0: You could possibly fold in a murder story here in the middle of all of this to Joseph Walker and his murder and this uh, somehow plays into, and I don't know if this is something that sways either Congress or, uh, or, or possibly the president, but public opinion as well. Who was Joseph Walker?
1: He was a Treasury agent, again, Secret Service, and he was on loan, um, again, Department of Justice, to investigate land frauds out in Colorado, um, Durango and so kind of up in your territory and what essentially was happening was is a corporation was taking up homestead, you know, properties and then mining it. And so Walker with some assistance from local law enforcement had discovered there was this bad land deal and there was something suspicious and he went to investigate. And so what they found on the property, which looked pretty much abandoned, a shaft that went down underground. So they went down, um, some of them went down and uh, to take a look at what was going on. And once they got to the bottom then there was a horizontal shaft and they went in and they found there was a whole mining operation where there should not have been a mining operation because this was homestead land. So it should have been just people living there and farming it, um, not stripping natural resources from the land. Well, some of the people got word that this was going on, and they came out there while most of the men were down looking, and Walker was up above and got into a firefight, and he was shot and killed. It was basically murdered because he had discovered this fraudulent abuse of the land. And how does this play out back in Washington? Well, this becomes part of the political, you know, it's one of those events that then takes on an enormous political implication. Um, The fact that, you know, Secret Service agents are being killed and uh, for the land fraud, which confirmed what Teddy Roosevelt believed and what was happening, Um, you know, the rape of natural resources, and it also kind of put Congress in a bad position because now you have a Secret Service agent on loan being used for this purpose, which he really shouldn't be, um, because they're supposed to end that practice, so that practice is controversial, but now he's been killed for an investigation, and so it, creates kind of that political firestorm. And in
0: that firestorm, a baby's born, and it's called the FBI.
1: (laughs) Yes, very quietly. The reality was is Teddy got just tired of this whole game that Congress was playing, and so working with Attorney General of the Department of Justice, Charles Bonaparte, um... He just and it was actually Bonaparte just created it, and quietly by you know a little Department of Justice Attorney General order, we're going to create the Bureau of Investigation. Um, the name at the time was Bureau of Investigation, kind of the forerunner to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So they transfer eight Secret Service agents. Basically, they quit their job and then they start up in the Bureau of Investigation and they go right back to doing what they were doing. And that is basically federal law enforcement going and targeting these kind of land fraud deals.
0: You know, this is an improbable kind of thing that happened. And if we back away from it and we just look at it from afar and we think about the FBI today, an institution that is... Been around and gotten so big and is uh, monolithic, but it's, but there's a consensus generally that we need an FBI and that the FBI has certain functions. It just sounds so backwards the way it all came together. And is that a problem for you? No,
1: that's kind of our American system, <laughs> the way that things kind of develop in this, you know. Um, we kind of recognize a need, and I, you know the bottom line is is that it's a very political system. we We have a you know a government, we have a constitution, and we like to think of everything being very you know organized and neat and orderly and efficient, and you know we see a problem, federal crime, we create an organization to fight it. But the reality is, behind all of this, it's a very political process. You know, the Constitution may state, and, you know, forgive me for using a, a modern, you know, current example, it states that when there is a vacancy in the Supreme Court, you know, the president basically recommends who it is and the Senate confirms. It' real simple, right? But the reality is, is there's a huge political fight and the timing of that, and do you wait, and, and you know, do we push this off to the next presidency or what have you, that's a political fight. And that is our system, that politics fight the, poli- you know, the various sides, et cetera. You know, unfortunately, we have just a two-party system by and large, so there's just two sides of the coin fighting, you know, an adversarial kind of approach. And they fight it out. And while they're utilizing the framework of the Constitution, it's a political fight to get things done.
0: So was this fight back in the days of Theodore Roosevelt and his opposition to Congress and their opposition to him, did it rise to the the scale of the kinds of polarization we've seen today and the, the wrangling between the executive branch and other uh, segments of, uh, of government. have uh, w- Was this a big, scandalous affair?
1: Yes, and what made it a big, scandalous affair is that, remember I said the FBI was created very quietly, and that was in July of, of 1908. And now all of a sudden we get toward the fall, Congress is back in session, And I believe Roosevelt was concerned that Congress could basically pass an act that would take away his ability to keep the Bureau of Investigation. So not wanting that kind of pet project to go away in the State of the Union Address at the end of 1908, and you've got to remember, Teddy Roosevelt is about to go out of office. He decided not to rerun. The inauguration is in March of 1909, so he's almost out of office. But buried within that State of the Union, he dropped a, just a total landmine. The bomb that he dropped was he essentially accused Congress of not wanting him to investigate, with the Secret Service, these fraud deals because they were implicated in it. So now he openly stated what he thought, and that created a political firestorm. And immediately Congress met, they, they discussed this issue, and then they decided to censure the president. Which is something that hadn't been done for decades, but, you know, prior to that, and so they censured the president for this, and that was in January of 1909. Roosevelt dug in his heels and said, "Nope, I'm not going to be cowed by this," and so he threw it back at them and gave evidence as to the existence of all of this, you know, land fraud deals, and how people within some members of Congress were involved in this. And it created a huge firestorm that ultimately the people started to side with the president, saying, yeah, he was right to to investigate this. Now, my belief from the read of all of these documents and all of this background and all of the politics is that Roosevelt dropped that bomb because he wanted to essentially kind of that smoke and mirrors Pay attention to the issue that Congress was against, using Secret Service to investigate, and don't pay any attention to my creation of the FBI.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That does sound slightly political, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) Very much so. And, And presidents do this all the time, right? But, you know, there's always that question, what is actually going on? What is he doing so we're looking at this, and we're all hyped up over this particular issue. But what is he doing behind the scenes that he's drawing attention away from? Well, doesn't Roosevelt at
0: some point have to get Congress to sign on to this new bureau? Some at some point, I mean, the funding has to be approved at some point. Not, or is it just diverted funding? At some point, there's got to be a, a regularization and an upfront okay, we've got an FBI now, we're going to keep the FBI, and the American government plans to support it and pay for it.
1: Yep, and Teddy Roosevelt's secret weapon was Taft. Taft was his vice president. Taft was not a very strong individual when it came to politics, and Taft was considered safe by everybody. In other words, he was very... Easily manipulated. And so, and nobody had fear that Taft was going to start, you know, investigating Congress and using the Bureau of Investigation to, to throw them in jail and, you know, uh, uncover all kinds of, you know, frauds and things like that amongst the, the senators and the, the Re- House of Representatives. So Taft was safe. And Taft came into office in March of 1909. And the issue. Went away.
0: So you think that ceding the presidency to his vice president, allowing Taft then to become the next guy there, it was an intentional de-escalation on the part of Roosevelt?
1: No, I, I don't think that. Um, I think that actually, I think Roosevelt thought Taft would continue his policies. But again, Taft was just too easily manipulated by everybody, as you know, a politician as a president, um, that it just turned out that way, but. The benefit was is that, you know, so he probably thought Taft would continue to fight to keep the Bureau of Investigation. But Congress saw Taft as being so weak that we don't have any worry that he's going to use it against us. So who cares?
0: <laughs> well, a change of guard can sometimes uh, result in uh, a new priorities and uh, a new focus and uh, the old animosities sometimes can uh, maybe, I don't know, evaporate? Is that a good word
1: for it? Yeah, I, I would think it's a great word. Uh, it, that's what happens. I mean, you know, and the beauty of our system is that, you know, every four years we change, you know, administrations and it's a whole new fresh start.
0: We don't have time to get all the way to J. Edgar Hoover, but our intention was to focus on where the FBI started, and there's a long history of where it went from there. Maybe you'll have to write another book.
1: (laughs) There's a lot of those out there already, so I think we're good.
0: (laughs) Well, Will Oliver, such a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you. Thanks for being with us.
1: It was a pleasure being on the show. Thank you for having me.
0: Willard Oliver, a professor of criminal justice at Sam Houston State University. He's author of The Birth of the FBI, Teddy Roosevelt, The Secret Service, and the Fight Over America's Premier Law Enforcement Agency. And that, my child, is how we got an FBI. <laughs> you know, I wish storytelling about our history were so simple that you could just say that. Or, or this line, and that's the way it was. Remember that line? Anyone old enough to remember? I do. Well, it's time for a short break now on Constant Wonder, and then we're going to follow up on Will Oliver's brief mention of the Pinkertons, those detectives, guards, investigators, almost a paramilitary unit working as contract workers – I'm actually kind of glad that we have an organization today that's been regularized called the Secret Service. It seems a little bit more justified than their precursor, that private eye agency, the Pinkertons. We're going to zero in next on the alleged plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln before he even made it to Washington, D.C., and the story of Alan Pinkerton stepping in to be a de facto protector of the soon-to-be president. Fascinating history. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder. Marcus Smith here. We began this hour trying to tackle the origin story of the FBI, tracing its roots back to the administration of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Before there was an FBI, there were already serious threats to the person of the president. And the story we're going to tell focuses on Abraham Lincoln. There was a detective back then named Alan Pinkerton who aimed to do something about The security needs of the president, or the president-elect, I should say. And along the way, Mr. Pinkerton created an organization, a private agency of investigators. Essentially, they were precursors of what we know as the Secret Service. And I want you to hear part of a conversation about this agency, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, had a chance to speak with Paul O'Hara O'Hara is a history professor at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he's author of *Inventing the Pinkertons: Or, Spies, Sleuths, Mercenaries, and Thugs*, being a story of the nation's most famous and infamous detective agency.
2: I think part of what, what led me to the story of the Pinkerton and uh, Pinkertons, and part of it is from my teaching. Right, I, I teach this the survey. And especially that second half of the survey, we pick up at the Civil War, and then we move into Reconstruction, and then we move into the Gilded Age, and then we move into labor unions, and then we head out west for a while, right? We jump around, and I was desperately looking for something to tie them all together, and the Pinkertons were in all of them, right? There were there were links that connected all of these various aspects together because between 1865 and really the first decade of the 20th century, they were everywhere, doing lots of different things in lots of different ways. So that's what what led me to want to explore them more. And what I learned the more I examined it was that the, the Pinkerton Agency existed on two very different levels. On the one hand, they were actively involved in labor conflicts and politics. And street riots, but they were also out in the west, and they were trying to chase down Jesse James, and they were chasing down uh, Butch Cassidy. Uh, they were uh, they were actively involved, but they were also a firm that was kind of inventing their own brand, and inventing their own tradition, and inventing their their own myth, while at the same time essentially helping to invent our very notion of what police are what detectives are what detective novels are and and both of these two levels interacted and intersected in so many different ways that depending on the story told and who was telling it Sometimes they're heroes, sometimes they're villains, sometimes they're thugs, sometimes they're mercenaries, sometimes they're spies, sometimes they're lawmen. They were all of these things. And that's what led me to this, this uh, to wanting to know more about the story.
0: Well, the curious thing from my perspective is I grew up thinking that uh, if you're on the American frontier, or at least in places where law and order are not necessarily prevailing, the story is you got a sheriff in town. And uh, what's so wrong with having a sheriff? Why would you need Pinkertons?
2: Well, I think the key to to the Pinkertons was that they were hired. They were there was always big money behind them. So when when they when they came through town, right, it was the it was the money of the railroad backing them, or it was the money of of big landowners or big cattle ranchers, or right there was there was a moneyed interest that it wasn't just chasing down. Criminals. Um, although it was at times, um, it was also intervening in in local politics, right? Settling land disputes, chasing people, chasing people off, um, and also when you get into you know Jesse James and and Butch Cassidy and this animosity toward railroads and banks, a lot of these uh, a lot of these outlaws had a certain kind of romantic, social bandit to them. And so when when big money hired hired people to track them down. The, it, it made the social bandit look all the more heroic.
0: Well, we're going to get into the story of how they were founded. The The guy named Alan Pinkerton, fascinating tale of where he begins and how he ends up doing this. But I just want to comment real quickly that on the face of things, when you hear the word detective agency, from our modern perspective, you think their only business is to solve crimes. But then your subtitle, spies, sleuths, mercenaries and thugs, do all of those monikers refer to Pinkertons?
2: Yes, absolutely. They're, they're involved in it all. Um, and they change their name periodically. Right? They start as a police agency and then become a detective agency and then become a national detective agency. Um, but they are, they are involved in it all, um, because, especially because they have two different divisions. There's the, the detectives, and they solve crimes, but they also uncover conspiracies, and that's, that's, that's the other key aspect, especially labor conspiracies. But then they also have the protective patrol, and that's basically uh, armed security guards. And that's where they get into a, a lot of trouble by doing lots of different things. So, yeah, they're doing it all.
0: So, Alan Pinkerton starts it all, and his story, his backstory, is one of incredible poverty in the, in what we now call the UK.
2: Yes, yeah, he's in he's in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, he's growing up in really one of the, the poorest sections of of, of Glasgow, um, and kind of grows up uh, as a bit of a radical. Right? He's a he's a working man. Um, he's a cooper and is involved in, in labor politics. Um, he's part of the Chartist movement. And this is a, this is a political movement of artisans in, the, in, in, in Britain and throughout Europe to try and get more political voice for working men. And he is directly involved in it. And that's probably why he flees. Um, he flees before the, the crackdown on the Chartists.
0: He gets involved in some kind of violent situations, I guess.
2: Uh, certainly at times, yeah. Um, it's tough to know, because he, when he gets to the U.S., and certainly as he becomes more famous, he, he weaves his own story. Um, and so most of what we know about him is what he tells us about himself. And um, depending on the audience, he changes his biography a couple of times. Um, but yes, he is certainly unquestionably involved in uh, labor politics in Scotland, and then gets involved in abolitionist politics in the U.S., um, so he's not necessarily the guy you would think would be the become the armed man of capital.
0: So he starts out as a cooper in Scotland. He's impoverished. He gets involved somehow in uh, this Chartist movement. Right. Is he a political refugee? He he flees his homeland.
2: He he says he does, um, and so he 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 leaves before the big crackdown. Um, but he's definitely he's getting out of out of Scotland uh, for for both uh, personal and political reasons. Um, there's no question that he's he's leaving leaving Scotland for very personal reasons.
0: And then there is once he arrives here, he's got to find a livelihood of some sort. And he could have just been a, a lowly Cooper. But somehow he turns into a policeman detective. And that that hinges with him stumbling into some counterfeiters. Tell us about the counterfeiters.
2: So again, this is the, the story that he tells, and that's, that's always a key part of, of anything involving this tale around the Pingertons. It's, it's all very self-created. Um, but the story he tells is that he's out looking for uh, wood. He's got to find just the right kind of wood, because he's a cooper, right? He's a barrel maker. And he stumbles across um, counterfeiters. He's, he's exploring along the river, and he comes across uh, a, a counterfeiters, and he goes to tell the local sheriff. The local sheriff. Thanks him and then asks, "Would you essentially would you be willing to come help me? There'll be a reward if you help me catch them." And he does, and he gets lauded, and he knows that that this becomes a pretty good career path. And so he starts essentially hiring himself out to to first local law enforcement, uh, the sheriff, um, but then the the U.S. Postal Service, and then banks, and then railroads, and then express agencies. And it turns out there's there's money to be made for for people who are willing to chase down uh, criminals and illegal activity.
0: And some of this converges, I guess all of this converges with the expansion of the United States uh, across a continent. You've got railroads that are starting to expand and uh, crossing state lines and so his policing actions, uh, his his whatever he's doing, his sleuthing or his policing it's kind of like he has—I don't know—under the aegis of what? Under the aegis of the government? Once he's working for the postal service, he's—he's he's free to do this.
2: He's essentially free to do what he wants, and that's—that's that's the great appeal, uh, especially for for banks um, and railroads, because there is the local sheriff, but the local sheriff uh, is is bound by county lines, and there are there are some police forces, not many, and they're fairly small and fairly corrupt, um, but they're limited by. Uh, by some borders as well, he's free to go where he wants. and He's free to, 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 to chase people down where he wants to. Um, and so he works for the, for the U.S. Postal Service, but he's never a federal employee. And he works for the Chicago Police Department, but he's never uh, a state employee. Um, so he's, he's always a, uh, a, he's contracted out, um, which gives him great uh, room to maneuver and do whatever he wants to do.
0: That that does sound like a mercenary. I mean, I mean, when you yeah. think when you think about this, um, his great competitive advantage seems to be that he's not beholden to those county lines, those state lines. He doesn't have to be deputized. He's right. pocketing the money as as a private, you know, businessman. That's an enviable position to set up a national outfit.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And he, this is what he gets lauded for, and he gets uh, great press for catching a lot of these counterfeiters. He's catching great press for catching uh, people who steal from express trains. Um, and, and yeah, he, uh, there's money to be made.
0: That Lincoln business, where he helps save Lincoln in Baltimore, where there are right. people out to get him, does, that, right. does he leverage that uh, in a big way, to, his, to adding to his myth and his stature? This becomes essential.
2: Uh, this, is, this is absolutely essential to everything that the Pinkerton Agency will become. Um, so he's hired by uh, the railroads, are, are, are who hire him to do this, right? The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, and that's who Lincoln's traveling on. That's who's worried about his safety. Um, he's been doing work for the railroad already. Um, that's, that's who brings him in. And he sends agents uh... into baltimore to hang out in bars and hear what hear the scuttlebutt hear what's going on he hears rumors that there's going to be an attempt this is what leads to, to his intervention um, and this this gets him this introduces him into washington at a very important time this introduces him into into federal work and spy work during the war he'll make a lot of money during the war um, and especially after eighteen sixty five especially after the assassination of lincoln the idea of, of a man who protected Lincoln um, becomes all the more essential; becomes a key part of the brand. And indeed, the, the Pinkerton agency digs up this photo. It's at Antietam, of, of Pinkerton standing next to, to Abraham Lincoln. And for the next 50 years, that picture gets plastered all over every Pinkerton office, every every Pinkerton document. Right, this this becomes the the, the key image of what the Pinkerton Agency is, is Alan Pinkerton and and Abraham Lincoln standing side by side.
0: In the conversation you've been listening to, our guest was Paul O'Hara, an associate professor of history at Xavier University. O'Hara is author of Inventing the Pinkertons, or Spies, Sleuths, Mercenaries, and Thugs, being a story of the nation's most famous and infamous detective agency. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder.